Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hey, welcome to New Books and Politics. I'm Jeff Bloodworth, your host. I know, if you're like me at least, you're really glad that the 2012 presidential election is over. Um, at the same time, I, I, I can't get enough of reading on all the different websites from Politico and 538 about the supposed demise of modern conservatism. Um, that's why this week I had uh, Patrick Alit, uh, who as my uh, guest. He is a professor of history at Emory University, uh, and he's written really a, a really fine book. It's called The Conservatives: Ideas and Personalities Throughout American History. It's published by Yale University Press, and this is a you know a fairly uh, small volume, less than three hundred pages, that really takes you through the whole sweep of um, the history of American conservatism. It's readable, it's accessible, it tells the story through people and personalities. Um, uh, Professor Alit uh, was uh, uh, gracious enough to give us a good amount of his time to talk about, um, you know, modern, excuse me, the history of conservatism so that maybe we can sort of place contemporary conservatism and the 2012 election in a little bit of context. Anyway, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello? Uh, Professor Alit. Yeah. Hey, Jeff Bloodworth. How's it going, Jeff? Good, good, good. Welcome to New Books and Politics. Thanks very much. Yeah. Um, first, I just want to tell you, it was a real delight to read your book. Um, oh, great. Yeah, readable, uh, accessible, and, and, you know, I still, and at the same time, I thought still deeply informed. Uh, and uh, I thought this was an ideal time to have you on to talk about your book following uh, the election. Um, oh, yeah. So I thought we'd just start off if you could just tell uh, listeners, you know, a little bit about your educational background, biography, kind of, um, you know, your, your field of study in general. Sure. I was born and raised in England. I was born in the town of uh, Birmingham and raised in Derby, which is nearby, right in the center of England. Um, I went to college at Oxford in the mid-1970s. And then when I finished college in 1977, I came on a vacation to the United States with a friend, and we hitchhiked all over the country and found it very, very interesting in many ways. Uh, After Hmm. that, I applied to go to graduate school at the University of California so that I could spend some more time living in America and finding out more about it. And then through a whole series of coincidences, ended up staying here. Um, I think I'm in, I I call myself an accidental immigrant. (laughs) Without planning to uh, to migrate, I uh, first I got my PhD, then I had a postdoctoral fellowship, and then I got this lovely job which I have now here at Emory in Atlanta, and so the incentives to stay increased and the incentives to go back diminished. So <laughs> I've been here for most of my working life. What a what an ideal time to have started to go to college. I mean, if you're going to study, you know, the history of American conservatism. Um, you know, and you, you start, you know, in the mid 1970s, you know, with really just a few years before Thatcher and Reagan come to power. I mean, exactly. Uh, could you tell, the, 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 go ahead. 
you know, the first presidential election I witnessed on this side of the Atlantic was the one of 1980 when Reagan defeated Carter. And yet at Berkeley, where I was a grad student, everybody thought that Carter was too conservative, <laughs> let alone Reagan. And so yeah. I think it was partly the, the cognitive dissonance of life in Berkeley that got me interested in studying how Reagan had come to be the winner. I'm glad that you mentioned that cognitive dissonance. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a historian of you know American political history. And <laughs> I mean, there are books out there that, that treat conservatives seriously and don't sort of like essentially – the the un the unsaid sort of question is what's wrong with these people? Um, right. th there are books out there, but we both know that you know the humanities is just seeped with <laughs> um, this sort of I don't know cognitive dissonance. Uh, and right. so one thing I really appreciated about your book, I mean, you, you take conservatives seriously, um, and it's you know it's a wide sweep. Um, so you know you can take this wherever you want to go, but I have some you know begin to kind of talk through, uh, you know, your sort of basic argument and, you know, feel free to, you know, take it in whatever direction you want to. Sure. I, first of all, if I, I you know, if, what, what, what do you think is an American conservative? And this might be particularly enlightening, you know, as only a non, you know, someone who wasn't born in America might be able to see a little bit better than we can. Right. Well, I think, for, uh, first of all, somebody, it, it's got to be somebody who wants to conserve the American political system yeah. and the American social system. And because those systems were created in the middle of a revolution, there's necessarily something paradoxical about it. One of the things I try to say in the book is that American conservatives want to conserve the capitalist system, but capitalism is itself a very transformative system. Yeah. Capitalism has done more than anything else to change the world in the last two centuries. And so it's a little bit odd to call yeah. the people who want to preserve the system, conservatives. And in fact, American conservatism itself has, has often split between those who are very enthusiastic about free market capitalism mm -hmm. and those who've got their doubts about it. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, uh, one of my colleagues is a British historian, and I was you know, admitting that my wife and I uh, really enjoy the, the show Downton Abbey. <laughs> and and he was telling me he was telling me a little bit about the the sort of the creator of this television show, you know, and he was like, oh, this guy is you know just a very sort of uh, uh, old school British conservative, and the sort of conservative, according to him, that sort of oh kind of looks back longingly upon some sort of like medieval past, you yeah. know, that the manor estate is the original, the way society should be. And it strikes me that a British conservative in that way is so very different from what you're saying an American conservative is. No question about it. Yeah. But English, that's right. English conservatives, uh, until very recently anyway, could, could say quite openly that they didn't believe in democracy and they didn't believe in yeah. human equality. Yeah. They had this idea rather that it's the duty of the upper classes to look after the lower classes. Yeah. And I think that shows like Downton Abbey appeal very strongly to that belief that there's a benevolent aristocracy looking after the lower classes. Yeah. And obviously the lord of the manor in that show is so benevolent, he's almost too good to be true. Yes. <laughs> I, I think it's really, it's a highly idealized picture of what England was like at the time of the First World War. Yeah. And probably not a very accurate one, but <laughs> there's clearly something in all of us that, that resonates with that. It and, does. Um, that's right. It's certainly been as popular on this side of the Atlantic as it has been in Britain itself. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is interesting because I mean, it brings, you know, you talk about the, the 
you know, the first kind of original American conservatives, the Federalists. Yeah. And, you know, and sort of they still have, you know, at least one foot in that old anti-democratic hierarchical world. And maybe we'll just kind of kind of walk through, you know, the different sort of stages of conservatism. Do you want to just explain, you know, the, the Federalists? Sure. This was the party of George Washington and John Adams and Alexander Hamilton. After the revolution and after the writing of the Constitution, they said, we've got to face up to certain hard realities, such as the, uh, the fact that um, it's a dangerous world and therefore we might sometimes have to defend ourselves. And therefore it behooves us to find ways to become wealthy because wealth and power go together. Hamilton's whole point was that he needed to make the federal government strong enough that when necessary, it could defend itself effectively. And in the 1790s, this is the period of the French, the chaotic period of the French mm-hmm. Revolution, and then Napoleon's rise to power. And so, and the Federalists were the group in America who said, this is potentially very menacing to us. And even though we only recently fought our war against the British, we should now be allied with the British against the hazards of the French Revolution. And they, so they were sympathetic to um, traditionalism. They were sympathetic to social hierarchy. They were anxious about democracy, especially if it de- degenerated into mob rule. Mm-hmm. And, they were, and they were particularly aware that people can intend social change to be good and then lose control of it so that it becomes destructive. Sure. And they thought that, that was what was happening in France. Yeah. And so I think one of the most lovely ironies of this whole story is that the, the person they were most worried about in America at that time was Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and in fact, Jefferson and his party were often denounced by the Federalists as being Jacobins, yeah. which is a, a way of saying they're like the horrible French revolutionaries. And yet by the, by the 20th century, Jefferson was looked back on by some conservatives as a conservative hero. Yeah. Even though yeah. in his own day, he was the opposite. He, he looked like a, radi- a radical menace. Yeah, so, I mean, these Federalists, I mean, could, you, could we call them Burkeans? Yeah, in many ways, I think that's right. Edmund Burke was their contemporary, yeah. and uh, obviously Burke had written his very influential uh, critique of the revolution in France. And people like Hamilton and Adams resonated very strongly with that view. Yeah, and so you know, one thing I you know you make it under you know these, these sort of understandable schools of conservative thought, and you know you you make it very clear that sure they're not in their neat little tidy boxes that there is an right. overlap. Um, but it, it's still, it's, it's, it's useful for at least me to get my mind around these things. Would you explain what early Southern conservatism was. Well, um, as I say, it was clearly different from the Federalists because they did tend to favor small government. Um, they were already states' rights advocates, partly because they were the people in charge of government governance in the states. Um, but what's most conspicuous about them is that they were defenders of slavery. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think one of the challenges for us today is to take seriously that, that serious people thought that slavery was right. Yeah. Uh, when you read Calhoun and his generation, mm-hmm. they were clearly people who, who honestly believed slavery was right. Yeah. And, 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 and in a way, it's not surprising because it, when they read the, – they, Christ- they were intense Christians, and when they read the Bible, they find slavery everywhere – Certainly, all through the Old Testament, although although God rescues the children of Israel from being slaves, He then doesn't seem to disapprove when they take slaves of mm-hmm. their own once they get to the Promised Land. Um, Jesus never condemns slavery, 
And so, and also, when they looked back, when the uh, Southerners looked back to ancient history, they found that in Rome and Greece, which they admired, slavery was universal. Yeah. So their view was, slavery is necessary to any society which wants to develop, and it's much kinder than the alternative. As they watched the Industrial Revolution getting started in the North, they said the, the Northern factory owners were the cruel ones because they only hire people for as long as they can do useful work. As soon as they get caught in the machinery, they get thrown aside. But with slaves, we, we give cradle-to-grave protection. So we're the benevolent ones. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a funny argument to read these days because it's so alien to the way we think about it. Yeah, yeah. But what's, I mean, what struck me as I was reading then is, is how obviously that they meant it. They really did think that uh, slavery was a benevolent and a defensible system. And in fact, they tended to be very critical of Southerners who they knew mistreated the slaves. Hmm. Yeah. Because they said, these people are going to give slavery a bad name, and it ought not to have a bad name. Yeah, it, that's the, always the difficulty of, of forcing students to, you know, to, to think in such an alien um, right. sort of mindset. So maybe right. you could just talk about like, the difference between a, a John Calhoun and a, and a Henry Clay. And, you know, what is the difference in their sort of – in their conservatisms? Well, um, I'm not sure I – mean, Clay, Clay is a complicated figure. Let, yeah. how, about, how about if I give you a contrast between Daniel Webster oh, Sure, and absolutely. That's, that's fine, yeah. All right. Um, Calhoun took the view that the, the Constitution was an agreement among the states – and that sovereignty still lay with the states themselves. Mm -hmm. So that when, if it came to the point that a state no longer found its interests were well served by being part of the union, it could separate. That's what the nullification crisis was all about in yeah. around 1830. But on the other hand, Daniel Webster said, no, no, once the states had formed this compact, the Constitution, their so sovereignty itself inhered in the, in the federal government. So the state was no longer free to leave the union. Already by 1830, they've pinpointed the issue, which is going to lead to the Civil War. Yeah. And uh, it was da Daniel Webster was really the first person to start glorifying the union itself. Hmm. And in the great speeches he made in Congress and in Massachusetts, and sometimes as a lawyer in the Supreme Court, he, he made a point of venerating the whole idea of the union itself. And he was very influential over the, the young Abraham Lincoln, who thought of himself very much as a kind of Daniel Webster-style Whig in hmm. his early life. And, and I think, what, I mean, what's so interesting about that is that this is a generation of people who are, they, what they want to conserve is the heritage of the revolution, which was itself once, uh, once looked like a revolutionary project. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a really interesting point. I, it, we, we know that, well, was, at least I associate the term uh, the Union with Lincoln, and I guess I've never really considered when did that term come into vogue? When did the Union become something that became worth fighting for? And that's interesting. So it's Daniel Webster that you give credit yeah, for. Yeah, I think that's right, particularly Daniel Webster in speeches from 1829. Hmm. Uh, one speech, the second reply to Hayne, where it's, it's got, it was a speech that was two days long, an enormous <laughs> Uh, rhetorical commitment, yeah, and it ends with an incredibly uh, emotional, uh, uh, rhetorically elevated um, defense for the Union. And he says, when I'm dying, when I take my last breath, I hope that I'll still be able to see the stars and stripes waving over an undivided republic. Hmm. And how dreadful it would be if I were to die witnessing it being torn apart by dissension. Hmm. 
Anyway, um, thousands of people showed up to listen to the speech. Congress was packed with people. And that, I think that's what really set off the, the sentimental veneration of the union. And, yeah, it's interesting that then Lincoln was just about 20. He was 18 or 20 at the yeah, time. Yeah. And, um, became aware of this, and it clearly had an enormous emotional impact on him. Huh. Yes, that's right. Before that, the union's just a sort of practical arrangement, but suddenly yeah. now it takes on these, emo- these, these semi-religious overtones. Yeah, and this is where I thought, you know, you're reading a book and you've, someone makes you think of something in an entirely new way, and this is one of the points in, in your book that, that, that did that for me, where you talk about the Civil War as a contest between two contending conservatisms. And it just, yeah. just talk about that a little bit. Well, what struck me when I was thinking about the beginning of the Civil War is that both groups wanted to defend something. Yeah. The Southerners wanted to defend slavery and they wanted to defend the tradition of states' rights. And they were afraid that the Republican Party was this dangerous revolutionary new force that was going to sweep it away. So that when they, did, when they seceded, and when they created the Confederate States of America, they then did everything they could to show that they were respecting tradition. In other words, the, con- the Constitution they made was an almost exact copy of the federal one. Mm-hmm. And they actually um, swore oaths of allegiance underneath a statue of George Washington, doing everything they could to emphasize the iconography of, of continuity. But meanwhile, in the North, the Northerners said, Lincoln said, what are we doing? We're fighting to preserve the Union. Yeah. The Union is the, is the thing that we've got to conserve. So in other words, both sides claim that what they're doing is preserving American tradition or conserving American tradition. But then, of course, once the war actually starts, and once both sides get into more and more desperate difficulties in trying to win, they have to start performing more and more radical acts to, to enable themselves to win. Yeah. So it would certainly be wrong to say... That, the, that it remained a pair of, co- of contending conservative causes as the conflict unraveled. Hmm. But that's certainly how it started. Hmm. Interesting. And, I mean, this is largely a political history, but you also, you know, mix in, especially as we get, um, you know, further, you know, closer to the present, you know, cultural and intellectual uh, strains of this. And you talk a lot about northern conservatives and seemingly their their sort of anglophilia. And um, I thought there was a very funny uh, turn of phrase where you talked about northern conservatives and their penchant for watching masterpiece theater. (laughs) And I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about that there in in the north, the kind of conservatism that looks to, to Britain. Yes. I, I mean, I think part of the conservative impulse, part of the conservative attitude is that we, we all belong to a civilization um, and that the Western civilization, which began in Greece and Rome, that somehow the heritage of it passed to Renaissance Italy and then it passed to Britain and then it passed to the United States. Mm-hmm. And, that, uh, and that as America became more powerful, it had to take on the role of being the, the leading defender of civilization. And that civilization is threatened by, uh, well, it's threatened by anarchy, it's threatened by tyranny, it's threatened by ignorant people who don't understand this tradition. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are the kinds of people who are very opposed to um, southern and eastern European immigration at the end of the 19th century. Uh, and 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 they take the view, overwhelmingly, the things which bind us close to Britain are more important than the things which separate us from Britain. You know, that, and that's what's odd about it. Despite the Revolutionary War, which obviously was the most emphatic form of separation from Britain, 
still, Britain's right on most questions, and we've got such a lot in common with them. People like Theodore Roosevelt and, yeah. and Henry Cabot Lodge are very keen on this idea. Yeah. And, they, and they, these, this was the generation of the Rhodes Scholarships, Cecil mm-hmm. Rhodes. Hmm. He was a Brit, but he loved, he, he loved the idea of American Anglo-Saxons. And so he said we should bring the best of them to Oxford every generation so that they can learn about the common heritage of the Anglo-Saxon peoples whose destiny is to, to rule the world. So by our standards, it's racist, it's, rather, it's very elitist, it's very intolerant, uh, but it does have at its core this idea of a precious heritage of Western civilization that's under threat. Yeah, and I, th- I thought it was uh, interesting. You know, you talk about post-Civil War conservatism and these two strains. There's, you know, the pro-capitalist, um, you know, someone, some Andrew Carnegie would be on, on, on that particular side that are yeah. rapidly changing America. And then, as you yeah. said, Theodore Roosevelt, and these are, you know, people who still fear mass democracy, still treasure high civilization. And yeah. you know, and how do, how do these two wings, how, how do they... How do they coexist during this time? Well, I think mainly because they have common adversaries. Uh-huh. What, both, both groups are very afraid of socialism. Yeah. And, um, and by the 1870s and 80s, uh, social radicalism and the beginnings of a socialist movement and the beginnings of a trade union movement are all, all seem threatening to these people. Hmm. So although they had disagreements among themselves, yeah. they, they all shared the view, what we really need to dread is socialism. And of course, that's a view that's vastly intensified after World War I when the, Soviet, when the Russian Revolution began. Yeah. Uh, in a way, from, from the 1870s right through to the 1990s, Fear of socialism and communism was one of the most important sources of conservative unity. So that even when conservatives were disagreeing over details, they were agreeing about that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, so as you're talking about like the uh, conservatives in the 20s and 30s, you still have these sort of, you know, the 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 ancestors of Theodore Roosevelt, the East Coast elites. And someone like even an H.L. Mencken and the Southern Agrarians, on the, on, on the other hand, they may disagree about the sort of what they're trying to conserve, but they, they know what they're actually against, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so if we could talk about, um, you know, kind of bring it into more of the present and sort of post-war, post-World War II conservatism. And so h- how does conservatism change? You know, we talk talked about, you know, from the Federalists through the whole sweep of the 19th century, and just, you know, think about conservatives and their reaction to FDR and the New Deal. Yes, during the New Deal, um, some Americans became very anxious about the possibility that the same kind of dictatorship that was growing in Italy and Germany and Russia would grow up in America. Yeah. And, the, and, and so far from seeing Roosevelt as a benevolent figure, mm-hmm. they said, look at the way in which he's making himself all-powerful. He's, he's concentrating more and more power in the federal government. He's even trying to transform the Supreme Court. He's our version of Mussolini. Hmm. Now, obviously, from our, from our vantage point, that seems like a crazy claim to make. Yeah. But I do think that at the time, in the mid-30s, Roosevelt did seem to be violating a lot of the principles of American tradition yeah. in, making it, in making the presidency and the federal government more powerful than they'd ever been before. So perhaps it wasn't such a crazy fear then as it, as it looks in retrospect. 
Sure. No, it's it's interesting. I mean, my understanding is like the, the National Recovery Administration used some of the same kind of propaganda techniques that the fascists used in, in, in Europe. I mean, these are very different sorts of results. But one can understand in the 1930s, the, you know, the, if you put yourself back there, how, you know, how how those sorts of charges against Roosevelt did not seem to a certain mindset of conservative so totally outlandish. Exactly. Uh, and, and and I find it fascinating the sort of, you know, rhetoric you heard about Roosevelt or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama. It's remarkably consistent. Um, but I don't want to get, you know, jump into the present just yet. Uh, so if you could just talk about um, – so we talked about sort of post-war conservatism and how they're, they're fearful that, that Roosevelt and – the sort of the, this new liberal state could transform somehow into the uh, authoritarianism that they've seen in Europe. How, right. So how, how does how does this movement gain you know allies in, in the post-war era? What is generally seen as sort of you know this is a liberal era. What what are conservatives doing to to organize? Well, after World War II, the most important issue was anti-communism. Mm-hmm. The, 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 one of the most fascinating things about the history of the 1940s is that the Soviet Union is America's ally in the defeat of Hitler. But very, very quickly, relations among the victors deteriorated. So it's already by 47, just two years after the end of the fighting, uh, the Soviet Union looks like an extremely threatening adversary. Mm-hmm. And obviously this is a period where the United States makes the momentous decision not to retreat back into isolationism, mm-hmm. but to remain actively involved in European affairs. And it's the period of the rapid rise of domestic anti-communism, yeah. the intense fear which, which culminated in McCarthyism, that communists and communist spies inside the United States are... Um, destroying the destroying the nation or potentially betraying the nation. That's one thing. And then there's also um, a, a renewed enthusiasm for the free market economy from libertarian writers, yeah. people like Friedrich von Hayek, mm-hmm. who wrote that very influential book, the, Ro- the Road to Serfdom. And then also people like William F. Buckley Jr., the founder of National Review. He was one of the first prominent Americans to say about himself. I am a conservative. Hmm. In other words, all the people we've talked about so far, they didn't very often use that term about themselves. Yeah. Daniel Webster never called himself a conservative, and I don't think Theodore Roosevelt ever did, even though they've got what we might think of as conservative characteristics. Yeah. But with Buckley's generation in the 50s and 60s, a new group rises up in which they say quite proudly and defiantly, yes, we're conservatives. And what we want to do is to conserve America as the leader of the free world against the horrible threat of communism. And I think because the, um, the Cold War issue to them seemed so clear-cut, they were able to gather a lot of support and a lot of allies. And then in the 1960s, when there was the intense controversy over the Vietnam War mm-hmm. uh, and a great deal of social upheaval surrounding the civil rights movement and the urban riots and the student movement, people who, were dis- who didn't like the... The the disturbances of the 60s also tended to be sympathetic to conservatives who said, we've got to have law and order. We've got to have have the country pacified because it seems to be becoming ungovernable. And so even though all the the headlines from the 60s go to the radicals, the long-term beneficiaries of the 60s were the conservatives. Yeah. 
Now, I always tell my students to – I teach a class on the 60s and, like, always remind them that um, that it's Richard Nixon who won the uh, youth vote in 1972, not George McGovern. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, okay, so we understand how at least you know, liberalism un- unravels and you have, you know, what was called middle America moving to Reagan and the conservatives by 1980. Now, what, what I find so interesting is, you know, we – Especially you think about um, conservatives, the way they talk about Reagan in the 1980s, especially if they weren't really alive and and, and, and sort of uh, participating in politics at the time, is they think about it as a time of sort of conservative triumphalism. And, and in a way yeah. it was. But your book, I think, does a really nice job of sort of talking about conservatism's high watermark, but also revealing sort of conservatives being unhappy at the same time, or at least feeling like they weren't getting um, – being as successful as they wanted to be. Do you want to right. talk about I think, that? But, yes. One of the one – the, uh, well, obviously, Reagan's victory in 1980 looked like an absolute triumph to, to most conservatives. Yeah. But then the conservative intellectuals became increasingly disappointed with what Reagan actually did. Yeah. Because Reagan and the practical conservatives were always thinking about how to stay in power, yeah. how to win re-election, and, and how to respond to the practical day-to-day realities of political life. And so they proved completely unable to reverse the direction of, for example, the growth of the federal government. Sure. Reagan said he was going to abolish entire departments of the federal government, but when it came to the point, he didn't. Yeah. He realized it was going to be so politically unpopular that he backed away from doing so. He swore that he was going to bring abortions to an end in America. But again, he found it was so unpopular that he, he shied away from it. So that the, the actual transformation in the 80s was far, far less than the conservative intellectuals had been hoping. Yeah. And, and so from our, that's right, from our vantage point, when we, when we study the history of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it's much easier to be struck by the continuities than by the transformations. Mm. So... That's a, that was a kind of education to the intellectuals that the, cons- the, the, the politicians are not people of principle. <laughs> they're, opportunists, yeah. they're opportunists, and yeah. they're, all about, they're all about winning re-election. Yeah. And then, then of course, I mean, what, another fantastic, amazing thing in the, in the 80s is that Reagan seemed to make much more progress with arms control um, deals with the Russians than yes. any of his predecessors had. Yeah. But with the strategic arms reduction talks and the INF treaty, he was willing to make concessions to Gorbachev that neither his Republican nor his Democratic predecessors had been willing to make. So suddenly Reagan starts looking a little bit like the the, the Quaker peacenik. And that was very <laughs> odd as well. Yeah, that is, that is the amazing thing about Reagan. Um, it, you know, I, I call it just the the, the the almost the unknowable brilliance um, in this way that that, that Reagan. Trusted Gorbachev. I mean, it, it is extraordinary, and yeah. um, I, you know, it, it 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 it's the. I think it's the you know the central problem that you know historic you know someone like an Edmund Morris who who could never sort of understand Reagan, so he created the you know the narrators in the book. Um, yeah. But it, so okay, you of course everyone's talking. I think talking you know in the immediate aftermath of this election about Reagan's legacy. Could you just talk us through a little bit about the 1990s and what happened to conservatism after Reagan? And sure. Well, I, I think the most important event is the end of the Cold War. Yeah. I mean, when the, when the Soviet Union collapsed, suddenly the whole world looked different. 
I mean, until that time, there'd always been this dreadful fear in America that sooner or later socialism or communism was going to triumph everywhere. But now that fear completely disappeared. I mean, the only people left believing in communism were ridiculous regimes like North Korea and Cuba. <laughs> so it was no longer a worry anymore. Yeah. And, and, and anti-communism had been the glue which held together the conservative alliance. After that, they all started disagreeing very violently. So the one group, the neoconservatives, yeah. said, we're now, America is now so powerful that it can dictate conditions to the whole of the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And they were very enthusiastic about, for example, um, regime change in Iraq. Other people, like Pat Buchanan um, and the, the so-called paleoconservatives, yeah. said, we've now come to an end of a 50- or 60-year period in which we had to intervene in the world, but now that's enough of that. Now we need to withdraw back into America's traditional policy of isolationism and let the rest of the world look after itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so violent disagreements about what the foreign policy should be and equally sharp disagreements about what the domestic policy should be between, on the one hand, people like um, George Will, who said big, big government conservatism is good. There are all sorts of ways in which big government is now necessary. And on the other hand, the libertarians who said, no, no, the whole point about conservatism is that we, we don't favor intrusive government. We want to scale it down as much as possible. Uh, so in the 90s was a period, I mean, it's already being talked by, about by some historians as the so-called holiday from history. Yeah. Where, it, I mean, it was, it was after the Cold War and before 9-11, when suddenly it looked as though there was an incredible array of possible choices the nation could make about what it wanted to do next. But that after 9-11, that, that feeling of, of freedom and possibility very quickly closed down. Yeah, I mean, I find this interesting. I, well, let me ask you this. I, I wonder, as I, as I hear you talk, this kind of struck me, the collapse of communism and maybe conservatives and most definitely liberals as well, but con we're talking about conservatives, that conservatives are still searching for, I don't know, a, a, a coherent sort of vision. And George Bush's sort of big government conservatism, compassionate conservatism, was discredited, um, you know, by 2008. And so do, do you see, uh, you know, a conservative fight over this sort of, you know, kind of what's next? You know, we had the Cold War that united us. You know, we tried compassionate conservatism. We didn't like that. Is, is this still con conservatives uh, searching for a common vision? Yes, I think so. I would say that uh, the last two elections both suggest that there's a conservative identity crisis problem. Yeah. That they've discovered that. I mean, well, in other words, when I think about groups like the Tea Party, mm -hmm. in a way I can understand the internal coherence of what they're saying. It's just that it doesn't play very well in national politics. Yeah, yeah. And that, uh, I mean, from the, if I was a Republican strategist, I'd hate every time the Tea Party people showed up on the horizon because they're divisive within the Republican Party and make it much more likely that the Republican Party, whoever it, the candidate, whoever it is, will lose. And it was striking, I think, this year that Romney was forced to appear to be far more part of the radical right than he really was in order to get the nomination. And then he had to struggle his way back towards the middle in order to pick up you know, central votes in the election and wasn't quite able to do it. Uh, so... So, so looking for a, a, a unifying vision for conservatism, it, that's, the, that's the big problem which the conservative movement faces today. It's got lots of interesting components, 
that they disagree so profoundly with each other, and they appear to have a, a general approach to the world which doesn't win elections, that I do think that they're in a continuing state of, of crisis. Yeah, you know, Conservatives, do you think they're sort of, um, you know, especially post-war conservatives, is the sort of natural middle of a, of of kind of modern American conservatism? Is it is it Goldwater? Is it this sort of libertarian um, strand where you talked about that there is a certain coherency to the Tea Party? I mean, is that the the natural state of where conservatism really is? Does that make sense? No, it's a- it's a, it makes sense, but I think the answer is no. Yeah. Uh, in other words, the, the business community, mm-hmm. mo- much of which presumably has got mildly conservative tendencies because it yeah. wants a secure business environment, is also happy with things like the federal regulation that we've got. Yeah. It might disagree with certain bits of it, but it understands that as long as there's a, legisl- as long as there's a regulatory environment, they can control it. And uh, and for the most part, they do. When you look at who actually runs the agencies, they're nearly always people have come out of the business mm-hmm. and, and understand it perfectly. Yeah. It's okay for them. I mean, clearly, America, corporate America has benefited from the growth of the federal state. It hasn't been a threat to them, yeah. especially in things like the defense industry. It's benefited, it's sure. benefited them. Yeah. So that when you think about the, the radical libertarian vision, it's never going to get very much financial support because the people with the money don't think it's going to do them any good, and they think it might very well do them a lot of harm. Hmm. Interesting. So where, where do you see the next 10 years based on, you know, I know historians are not, are not uh, fortune tellers, but if you had to, <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what do you think? I mean, are conservatives just in, for, as you said, an identity crisis, and it's just sort of, this is, you know, the kind of business country club conservatives are going to slowly have to take back conservatism from the, the Tea Party elements? Well, in, in terms of practical politics, if they're most interested in winning elections, yes, they've got to do that. And they've got to find candidates who are attractive to women and attractive to minorities. I mean, it, it, clearly, in this week's election, the Republican Party suffered from the fact that it couldn't pick up minority votes. And as the population becomes more and more ethnically diverse, and as, and as minority groups become politically more influential, if the Republicans can't get hold of them, they're going to become a permanent minority party. So I think it behooves them to look for attractive minority candidates. And it's also, and it's also a very good idea for the Republicans to look for candidates who don't appear to be heartless. <laughs> I do think that, that Romney's Bain capital life hurt him. Yeah. I think his Mormonism hurt him. In other words, a lot of evangelicals have got doubts about Mormonism and probably didn't really infuse about him. Yeah. But all, all, all the qualities which, for example, Reagan had got, um, Romney didn't have. Yeah. In other words, all, all sorts of people loved Reagan, even if they didn't specially agree with his politics. Yeah. And he'd got a marvelous, reassuring, folksy, friendly manner. It was it was it was very difficult to dislike Reagan. Yeah. But it was relatively easy to dislike Romney. And I think the Republicans <laughs> need to find a way to 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 seek out candidates who've got plenty of crossover appeal. Yeah. Whereas Romney had none, or almost none. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you know, thank you for for your time and talking about uh, your book. The typical last question uh, that I have is, you know, what's next? What what is your next uh, project? What are you working on? 
I'm working on a book on the history of the great environmental controversies of the last half century, hmm. from, the 19, from about 1960 to the present. Uh, I teach classes on environmental history, and this is my first attempt to write a long uh, study of it. And the theme of the book is this. The problems were real, but they weren't apocalyptic. <laughs> so, in other words, I don't think we're running out of natural resources. I don't think we're going to um, kill ourselves through overpopulation or contamination. Yeah. Um, I don't think that human-induced global warming is going to drown the cities. Yeah. But I do think that all those problems are real problems. But luckily, we've got, um, um, we've got the capacity, we've got the technological ability to react to them. And, that what, and we have reacted to them very well. Yeah. So that the world is, for example, far cleaner than it was in the 1960s. So it's a kind of anti-alarmist view of the great environmental debates. Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, one thing that I. It's amazing when you read the literature of environmentalism. Well, 1960s, 1970s, or even today, just how alarmist it actually is. And so, right. You're either in one camp. You're either a denier or an alarmist. Instead of you know, hey, we can innovate our way out of many of these problems. Well, exactly. um, yeah, Patrick. Um, um, Alet, um, it, the conservatives, ideas and personalities throughout American history. The book came out in paperback in 2010, right? Yes. Okay, and through Yale University Press. That's Thank right. you so much for your time. It's a very great pleasure. Okay, have a good day. You too. Bye bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed um, my interview with uh, Professor Patrick Alitz um, and talking about his book, The Conservatives, Ideas and Personalities Throughout American History. I want to encourage uh, listeners to go out and buy this book. It's put out by the Yale uh, University Press. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, I will guess I'll talk to you next week. Thank you.